Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 235. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 235 you're listening to. My guest today is Dave Nelson. Dave is a composer, sound designer, and re-recording mixer, and he is also the owner of Outpost Studios, located in San Francisco. And his work involves an interesting mix of documentaries and features, shorts, as well as albums, some of which have been nominated for Academy, Emmy, and Grammy Awards, yes. Uh, I stopped by Dave's studio, Outpost Studios, this past week and had a great conversation with him, and I look forward to bringing that to you. So Dave Nelson, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups. Let's talk about giving. So last week I talked about selling stuff and how that can be a key component of your, you know, diversification mix, if you will, of the different audio uh, things you do or the different ways that you have income streams to support the underlying audio thing that you want to do. So I want to bring this perspective on it, and that is I'd like you to consider giving things away. Right. So, you know, it's great to sell stuff. It's great to make some money. I love that. But I get such a thrill out of giving somebody something that really helps them out. One of the main things that I do, and I may have mentioned this in the past, there's too many episodes for me to even remember if I've talked about this. But one thing that I do here is is I have a friend here in Lafayette, California, uh, my buddy Steve. Steve is a uh, computer guy, computer repair guy. Mac repair guy specifically. And he is constantly working with some pretty high-end clients who, you know, the story goes, it's like this. It's like, you know, he shows up, helps them get a new Mac and gets it up and running. And then they hand him the old Mac and say, can you get rid of this? And Steve and I have a deal where he gives me those computers. I clean them up physically, you know, take all the, you know, many people just don't wash their keyboards, believe it or not. So I I clean those filthy keyboards and mice, (laughs) Uh, clean those screens, and then I wipe the computers and uh, put their native OS on there, and then uh, make sure that it's ready to go and ready for the next person to uh, start doing their thing on. And then, The agreement that Steve and I have is that we don't sell the computers, or I don't sell the computers. I find people that are in need, and that could be a friend who's financially having a hard time. It could be, um, you know, somebody that, somebody or some organization that is in need of computers. And uh, one thing that I've looked into but uh, discovered that it's already kind of something that's being dealt with is foster children who need computers. There is an organization here in the Bay Area that does that. Foster children who have no money and no means of getting a computer are using their cell phones to do, you know, school papers on, which is, you know, it's hard enough to text on a phone. Can you imagine, like, doing a paper on a phone for school? I can't. Also, when it comes to audio gear, um, this is something to consider. I know that we are conditioned to think 
okay, I bought this, you know, how many of you have bought a Pro Tools rig that you're like, oh my God, I paid thousands of dollars for it. And when you go to sell it, you know, it's like, it's worse than a car, right? It's It, go, it goes so far down in value that sometimes it's just not even worth it. I'm asking you to consider audio gear that you don't use, that you are comfortable parting with. Consider helping somebody out with a situation that they could benefit from, you know, getting some audio gear. I'm not talking, you know, just, you know, random people. Find, try to find somebody, maybe somebody you're mentoring that is financially not that well off or financially not able to, you know, get it together yet. Maybe that can be part of the mentoring, you know. Now, I know that, you know, when you're trying to t teach somebody financial uh, responsibility, giving somebody something doesn't always work for some people. And I understand that. I understand the, the idea that, you know, you want to teach somebody to work for something. I mean, I can tell you that when I get stuff for free, it's great. I like it. But man, the things that I buy, I really value. And it's and it feels good, right? So it's kind of a mixed bag. And it's you're going to have to use your discretion to find the right situation because, you know, there's not a clear-cut situation where I could say, go to www.giveyourcrapawayforfree.com. But you might know some people, you might know some friends of friends, and there's people all over the world struggling, right? We know that. So if you can get a line on somebody in your community who could use your help or an organization that can use your help that helps others, that would be great. So really consider the concept of giving and helping others out because man, that's that's such a thrill. And I, I guarantee you, and, I, and you can quote me on this, if I ever win the lottery, I'm not gonna give all my money away, but I'm definitely gonna come up with a strategic way to help people out as best I can because I get such a thrill out of doing that. It's, it's very rewarding. So that's it. So uh, explore the concept of giving something away, see how it makes you feel and uh, do what you think is best, but it's something to consider. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, that's it. Let's get to it. Let's talk to Dave Nelson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. And we're at Outpost Studios in San Francisco. This is Dave's place. Let's just start with, where did you grow up? I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, part of the Midwest Republican country. Yeah. I was right there. Gerald Ford lived down the street from me. And we used to run up to his door at night and knock on his door and then run and hide in the bushes. <laughs> but he was kind of showed some qualities that he would later show as president where he would come out on the front porch and he would stand there for 15 or 20 minutes and just stare out into the night. And we were crouched down under bushes and we had to crouch there for so long that it was so uncomfortable that we never did it again. Because he would just stay there? He would just stay there. That was pretty pretty smart of, of him, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Most people would just walk back in right. and take off. No, no, he understood the significance of the whole thing, and he knew that the longer he stayed, the more we had to stay. <laughs> Grand Rapids, okay. My wife actually grew up outside of Detroit in Dearborn, uh -huh. so I go to Michigan every year. Wow. Yeah. It's a different, difficult place to visit. Yeah. I have a, a love for it, but I tell you, it's when it snows and we go there in December and we're on our way from Detroit Metro into the Dearborn area and now Farmington Hills area, the barrenness of the trees, it looks like the setting of a horror movie. Like Flint. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> like Flint, but which, with better which turned water. turned out to be a real horror movie. Yeah, which is the true yeah. life horror movie. I went to school for a couple of years up at a little school outside of Traverse City, so way up north there, and that was just a trip. I mean- We're going to Traverse City in like two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For summer. It's going to be hot, and there's a lot of bugs. Oh, yeah. Well, so growing up, where did audio present itself to you? Yeah, and probably not at all. I mean, I would, I would have to say that, you know, because I am of that generation that probably seen Elvis Presley on the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey show, which is the, one of his first appearances ever, sort of opened me up to the possibilities of mm. emotional freedom. And then some of my best friends all formed a band, and I didn't really have the skills they had, so I was like the band's best friend. 
you know, my my best friend Fitz played a cherry red guitar and emulated Chuck Berry. And I was in Michigan, so I got to go see like Frankie Lyman. And I saw like the Buddy Holly show right after the show without Buddy Holly, right after they died. And a lot of those kind of opportunities were because of Detroit and because of the Motown scene, were open to a, a young white kid like me in Grand Rapids. And uh, I think my whole thing about race and everything got expanded by admiring, you know, young black men and women who were creating, you know, this completely unknown music at the hmm. time. Wow, that must have been mind-blowing. As it's being created, you're at the forefront of it there to observe. Right, as like a 13 or 14-year-old. Yeah. And I kind of knew right then that, you know, the normal life was not going to be my life. Was it a bit of a beaver cleaver existence in, in your growing up period? <laughs> Nothing that idyllic. Right. But my father died when I was 12, so mm. there was no, you know, happy hearth family to retreat to for the normal stuff. That's interesting with your father dying. I've had, not in a row, but I've had three recent guests whose fathers have died at relatively early ages, anywhere from 12 to, to 19. I mean, obviously it has a huge impact on a kid, but did it have any ramifications that manifested themselves later on? Things that you realize, oh, I I went this direction because my father died, or because I ha I felt a need to go in a particular direction. Well, I think it did in some in more of a practical way that my mother remarried later, and it was a kind of a classic. My stepfather and I did not get along, and we actually got in a fist fight once, and and I basically just wanted to get out of there. Mm. And so, 1967, I came and to the summer of love and came and lived in a community in the hate. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then, of course, wow. almost immediately when I came out here, I saw Jimi Hendrix <laughs> and there was no turning back from that point. <laughs> and then I also thought, well, this I made the right decision. Every part of every step along the way led me to hate Ashbury in 1967. <laughs> Plus, it was the antithesis of, of growing up in, in a more conservative Midwestern totally. town. Absolutely, yeah. Music obviously was abound. I mean, I obviously, I was not here, but the Bay Area was teeming with the dead, Janis Joplin, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Saw all of them. And I was sort of back and forth with L.A. because I did have a sister and a brother-in-law in L.A. And he was also in the entertainment business. He was a writer. And he wrote this kind of well-known cartoon series called Roger Ramjet. And when I was in L.A., then I also got to meet guys like Gary Owen, who was, you know, famous voice actor, broadcaster, and was around some very interesting early Hollywood sort of educational TV people that were very flamboyant and drank too much and all smoked cigarettes and cheated on their wives and that whole stereotypical scene that has kind of been told, kind of like Mad Men. I was just way. thinking yeah. Mad Men. Yeah, yeah, kind of like Mad Men in a way. <laughs> But then, you know, when I was down there, I lived in Santa Monica for a while, and I used to, like, smoke pot with Robbie Krieger from The Doors, and we used to see Jim Morrison every once in a while. We were all scared of him because he was, like, this ranting guy with, a like, a jug of wine on his arm, you know? And even Robbie was scared of him? No, no. I never saw them together. I just, oh. I saw them separately down there, and I, and then I just got a guitar and started playing guitar without ever being trained at it with a band called Water, and I started playing 
playing harmonica. And then I ran into Taj Mahal, who's still a friend of mine. And Taj Mahal gave me some harmonica lessons. It just went on from there. And I was a, a guitar player and a harmonica player, super into the blues, Paul Butterfield. And everything was happening back then. But then I heard John Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> did you see him live or did you? Or? No, I just okay. heard I Love Supreme. Oh, yeah. And I just stopped playing guitar and bought a saxophone and became a saxophone player from that point on. Had that much of an impact. Wow. I got rid of all my blues records, just threw them away. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, so did you carry that forward in a professional manner playing sax? Yeah, I formed a band in 1972 up in uh, Portland, Oregon called Upepo. And we became quite famous for about 10 years straight. I was on the road, a traveling band. And right around that time also, I sort of discovered Brazilian music and Latin music. And you might say that we were like one of, if not maybe the first world beat band, because we were a bunch of white guys that wanted to play Latin music and we didn't really know how to do it right. So we created the sort of hybrid Latin music rock thing that became super popular and we sold out clubs and played all over every college town on the west coast for 10 years straight so you definitely had got that that early musical experience the touring experience how music is done on a professional level so at what point did audio start to creep in well, finally, after 10 years, we just got sick of each other. <laughs> we just, you know, just That's like a good run. it was a marriage. Yeah. And we were just like, we were working so much that we couldn't write any new songs. And we kept playing the same songs over and over again. And I've read this, many bands are in this situation, you know, when you work so much, it's really hard to get out of that, that mindset, which is replicate something that you did. And, and you get all this response which is very satisfying, but creatively, I think it's really hard to grow in that situation. Hmm. So we finally broke up, and then I became friends with this guy, Leonard, who had another band up there, and he was the leader of his band, and I was the leader of my band, and we formed a band called Autotom, and we figured that we were never going to get anywhere up in Portland, so we moved down here to San Francisco. And instead of performing, we started recording, and we built a little garage music studio that we called Poolside. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I remember the name Poolside. Poolside and well, Poolside didn't seem like it at the time, but it turned out to be quite iconic in many ways. First of all, I became friends with this guy named Donnie Blank, who had this software company called Alchemy. And he invented, or it was actually called Blank Software, and the product was Alchemy, and it was the first stereo sampler. And so I started hanging out with him and this other guy from Oregon who I met because I played at his high school <laughs> graduation many years before. And I started getting exposed to software and music. And we at Poolside, according to Josh, who worked for Digital Design at the time, had the very first Pro Tools serial board 001. So as soon as I saw how the game was being played, to be in the analog recording business and the movie business was a very elitist operation because it was hard to shoot. It was You had to have lighting. You had to have a machine room. You had to have tape machines. And when you talk about the expense of what we use these days, Pro Tools, 
a new Mac, you know, $6,000. Everyone's going, oh, my God, $6,000 for a computer. I, I mean, back then it was $30,000 for a tape recorder. And then you had to have one of those big giant consoles. And then you had to have a room that was air conditioned and a machine room to get the noise out of. That's one of the reasons this control room we're in now is so quiet because there's nothing in here that makes any noise. Yeah, people's perspective, especially your comment about the new Mac Pro, I, I just think back like to my first several Pro Tools rigs and what those cost. It's like, yeah, six grand. That's, yeah, I mean, not, that's uh, not bad. Well, I mean, the other thing is like the tape recorder was $30,000. And back then you really couldn't get the cleanest, most competitive type recording without a, a channel of Dolby SR for every channel. And that was, then back then, the, it was $1,000 a channel. So if you had a 24-track tape machine, you also needed 24 tracks of Dolby SR for another $24,000. And you needed a console. Hmm. So when all that was happening, I was saying, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to be able to play this game. I'm not going to be, I'm never going to have that kind of money to go and make that kind of investment, you know, for the things that I was doing, which was kind of like my whole life, a little bit off the grid, doing people who were just starting out, bands that were undiscovered. And then by that point, I was also full on into Cuban music. And I was working with this producer in the East Bay. He's over there now, Greg Landau. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Greg Landau. Greg. Yeah, so I, I mixed like all of Greg's early records. Hmm. So then right back when all that was going on like that, we were then we were starting to record on ADATs because ADATs didn't need Dolby SR. And, you know, and then, there was, you know, there was a giant controversy about, well, yeah, but it sounds bad. You know, it's digital. It sounds bad, which was everybody was saying it's never going to work, you know. And no one really, I don't think, understood in those days that it was just easier to record on tape. Tape was so much more forgiving, you know, and you record digital, you just have to have, you have to be much more careful, and you have to be, you know, what goes in is what it is, you know, where I think on tape you would record on tape and then you, what came out was affected by the tape and it sounded good. Yeah. Yeah. I, re I remember when ADATs came out, I, I think I was working at Audio Images at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it, it just, it was fascinating. Yeah. People were just coming in and buying up those SVHS tapes by yeah. the boatload. And you could chain them together, right? So yeah. By three of them in your 24 tracks. Greg Landau then would take an ADAT to Cuba. He would record these bands in Cuba in their living room or wherever they could get that was quiet. And then he would bring them back to me. And then at that, by that point, I took another kind of big risk and I bought the first Euphonics digital console. So I had Euphonics 001 as well. So then we were really in a new world then. We were, you know, syncing off ADATs. We were going into the first digitally controlled console. We could automate EQs. Way back, years and years and years before anyone ever thought about automating EQs. This is all happening at Poolside. This was sort of Poolside, and then around 1996, we decided that we were successful enough that we were going to change the name and build a bigger, new, better facility called Outpost South of Market. Okay. And was that only your operation, or were there others involved? Oh, yeah, there were others involved. Yeah, okay. Yeah. When I first came down, like I said, it was this guy, Leonard Marcel. I mean, the studio business is, is a hard business, and I know that's one of the things you know, you're know you sort of interested in talking yeah. about. I mean, it's a difficult business, and it's the sustainability and the amount of sacrifice you have to make. And a lot of people want to get into it because they think there's going to be some glamour involved. Yeah. And occasionally, every rarely there is. But I mean, you just have to live and breathe it because things are changing, things are breaking, 
technology is changing the way you do things. And Well, you're not in it for the glamour. So why did you get in it? Why did, what attracted you to well, audio? Well, see, this is what's interesting. So then around that time, I went to see Laurie Anderson. Oh. Yeah, so you can see, like, whoever I see, <laughs> that's what, you know, I changed my whole life around. John Coltrane, Jimmy <laughs> Hendrix. Right, yeah, yeah. And she was doing her thing where she was up on stage and syncing up to a video behind her. And and we said, that's what we should do with our band, Autotom. We should pre-record some stuff, record some stuff on tape, figure out a way to lock it all down up on stage. And in those days, you know, there wasn't that many ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was all using sync codes out of arpeggiated micro moogs, you know, <laughs> that all had to be, we kept getting more involved with the computer pre-computer geeks, you know, electronic geeks that knew how to figure out the back of these units that would send out a code to something that you could trigger. Uh, Kids these days, they have it so easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then after I did that, some a couple people just said, well, if you can do that, couldn't you sync up my film? And I said, well, I, I guess I could. Yeah, I haven't really thought about that, but... I guess, yeah, we could do that. And then everything changed. One of the things that changed, it was in, you remember this little little box that you could plug in? It was like a $100 thing that would you would be able to, to run video into it from a three-quarter inch tape machine and, and put it up on a screen. And you didn't need a projector anymore. I'm trying to think of what that was called. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember that. I can't think of what I it was know. A, that was the smallest little thing, right? It was not expensive, but it basically took the machine room and the projector out of the equation. You could come, you know, right out of the computer, right into this thing, and then you could send that video to different screens without a noisy machine room projector. Traditional projector. Yeah. And that was sort of the big switch when all of a sudden you you could do this kind of work other than a place that had projectors in a machine room. And did you see a change in, in business? Were people starting to gravitate towards? Absolutely, your- yeah. And first of all, it was a lot cheaper. And so you were oh. able to do things that, with much more local people. Like I said, I think I sort of think of it as film back in the days was a very elitist thing to be into. I mean, just even, it costs money to shoot. These days, as you know, I mean, there's low light cameras. You don't need a, a big giant crew necessarily. And same in post-production. You didn't need this big facility with a machine room and a machine room operator and a tech and an engineer. So the dynamics of it were changing dramatically, right? Dramatically, right? All the constantly. Still are, really, right? Yeah. I mean, this whole AI thing that's going on now is, you know, interesting. The same way it happened with tape and digital, some part of me wants to go, I'm not going to use AI. I mean, I have ears. This is what I'm trained to, to use my ears. I don't need a, some AI to tell me what the, what's good or what's bad. Right. Other than it's instantaneous. <laughs> yeah. Other than you can take a song and say, put it through Lord Alge uh, mixing template and let's see what it sounds like. And, and for the audience, as we were walking into the control room here, I was telling Dave how my oldest son is at summer camp doing artificial intelligence as his study this week. Here we are talking about it in our world of audio as it emerges in more and more products. Well, so the dynamics of this studio, what what years are we talking about here that that this is happening? Like, well, I think right around 96 or someplace mm-hmm. around in there. I mean, and, or probably a little bit before then. It was all sort of a little bit blurry between what happened at the end of Poolside. And we spent a year building this place south of Market. 
and we got a building and gutted it and built it out from scratch. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. What are the the financial lessons that you walked away with from that experience? Be very, very, very careful (laughs) because I lost my studio in a real estate situation, a studio that was mine that I built from scratch that got taken away from me because I wasn't very, very careful in signing contracts and uh, allowing other people to use the studio. The the lesson here is, is watch yourself and treat it like a business as it should be treated. Yeah, because every time I've made a lazy decision or a quick decision without considering it, often I've paid for that. I think sometimes we like to think that we're all musicians and and all artists and that that we have a healthy respect for each other and that that maybe some of these kind of real estate things might not happen in our world because I think maybe sensitivity might play into it or helping, you know, a little bit like sports. Maybe we are all in it together a little bit, but not always. (laughs) Not always. Yeah, sometimes we extend trust where maybe we shouldn't extend trust. Yeah. Which is disappointing because it can make us start to exercise those overly cautious tendencies towards others that we might not necessarily need to. Although now I find, looking back at that, that a really good, solid contract looked at by a lawyer, it's not insulting to say, let's do it that way. When I point that out, when people talk to me about, I want to come in here, I have a film I want you to work on. And I say, well, look, here's what we do. You know, we you know come to an agreement and then we'll write it out in a little. And sometimes I like to refer to it as an agreement rather than a contract because I just think it sounds better. We'll just write out a little agreement. And if it looks good to you and it looks good to me, we'll sign the agreement and we'll just try. And, and sometimes in that agreement, we weren't careful enough. We didn't say, well, like, for instance, what happens if we book this much time and we don't finish? Then what happens? So we try and include those things like with a contingency or that if we think we can do this job in, say, two weeks and you agree that you think it's two weeks of work and it takes three weeks, well, then we'll have a a clause to address that in the agreement ahead of time. Yeah. And I guess over time, you've been through this enough with your clients that you know generally what's involved. Yeah. And they and often they do too, but we try and go through that all ahead of time. We lay it all out. This is this much for dialogue editing, you know. This much for sound design. This much for mixing. Huh. These days, I'm trying to say, well, if we go twenty percent over, fine, we'll do a contingency on that, right? If we go twenty percent under, then you know what happens then. So there's always these questions, but then we try and come up with a low hourly rate that if we go beyond these parameters or in this agreement then it becomes $100, $150 an hour okay. for all additional work. How were you getting clients back then in, say, 
the outpost days mm-hmm. post poolside. Well, some of them came from poolside. I have to say, we you know when I when I moved over to outpost, I took on some different partners, and they didn't like the name poolside. They didn't think it was professional enough, and they thought it was a little too frivolous sounding, and. I probably lost 50% of my clients <laughs> because I didn't have the money to tell everybody and do it in a in those days. I think advertising was also more expensive because there wasn't really much online, anything like that you could use as an advertising source, right? So it would be like ads and magazines, which are really expensive. Hmm. So we kind of, to some degree, had to start over, and it was really, really tough at that time, you know, and it was a lot of very lean years. But I think a lot of it was this attitude about all the things we've been saying about about John Coltrane, about Jimi Hendrix, about digital, about computers, about consoles that uh, drew some people to us where they, they thought, wow, these guys are, are doing some interesting things. I want to dissect when you say I had partners. So- Functionally, how does that work for you? Do they just provide money and have input and then take profit share? Or No, it's, it's more from the very thing. Like we were going to start this new business and we needed money and we needed technical expertise. And at that point, I was working with this kind of young guy, Eric Holland, who was brilliant. He could design circuits. He you know, was also interested in recording more music than me. I was more a little more on the film side, although I was sort of doing mostly Latin music, and he was more, you know, more or less some sort of rock and roll, but it was a little more adventurous than that. And he was able to intellectually figure some of these. Like he he made the first Euphonics console do some things that Euphonics wasn't able to figure out for several more years. <laughs> yeah, well, and eventually Euphonics hired him away from me. Oh. Oh, that's good, and that's bad. Yeah. What would be your advice when, if somebody's entertaining the idea of bringing on partners? Yeah. What kind of things should they consider? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit scary. I mean, certainly, once again, a contract, an opt-out. Often, when you bring on partners, everybody puts in a certain amount of money. So you need to be very, very clear with that. Like, what happens if it doesn't work out? I think you need to not try and not be negative about the situation, but, you know, you have to be smart about it and you have to have that in the back of your mind, even if you don't really want to talk about it. What happens if, what if it's a bad marriage? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, do you find yourself in those situations, are you more of the creative person driving the train and getting It's always been a pretty equal partnership all the way along, but I sort of have been like the spark plug that started it up, but, but everybody else was equally as important and and contributive as I am. Hmm. Now I'm a sole owner and that's the lesson I learned. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that. So in the prior incarnation of Outpost, that was a deal gone bad, you say. So what did you do after you lost your space in in this situation? Well, I had a farewell party and this one of my competitors, Roger, who ran this place here, And at this point, San Francisco real estate was starting to already starting to become prohibitive to artistic situations. And and we all, by that point, knew the amazing cost of building a place from scratch to build a room like this. And more and more as time goes on in an expensive town like this is like almost impossible unless you own the building Mm. or something like that, right? So Roger came to the party and he said, don't build anything. (laughs) 
He said, I have a building with five studios in it, and I only have enough business for two of them. So I came over here and and looked at the rooms, and this was the biggest part of that equation, this room right here, Studio A, because I needed a room without a window in it because to get a be Dolby certified, which I was at my old studio, you have to have a perf screen, movie screen like this with the speakers behind it. So you can't have a window there. Huh. And and much of the income from studios happen in that kind of environment where clients sit here, there's a window, there's the talent. I mean, that is like a one of the continual money-making parts of owning a studio. Yeah. But you can't mix a Dolby theatrical film in a room like that. Very You can, but it's it's frowned on and it's not certified by Dolby. Okay. So the room that we're in is Dolby certified. Yeah. Because of the fact that it doesn't have a window and it's got a perf screen with speakers behind it. And when I first came to look at this studio, because I have two other rooms here too that do have windows in them, I asked my friend Dan Sperry from Dolby to come down and take a look at it. And he came down and I said, is this room big enough to certify me for theatrical? And he said, it's just big enough. We would certify you here. And he was wonderful and consulted with me. And also my friend John Luce Dolby consulted with me and and it turned out really nice, and it's a wonderful sounding room. And then the room itself is almost like a tracking room. Sometimes people say, oh, this tracking room has a sweet sound to it. And this room is kind of like that as a mixing room. It's just a sweet sounding room. Hmm. People's voices sound good in it, just like we're talking. So for, for some people in a traditional music studio, there's a couple, I think, key pieces of gear that have always been thought of that would bring in business. You know, if you have a, a particular... Neve console, or you have a grand piano of a certain pedigree. Is that the same to have a Dolby certified room? Does that is that like a, a sign of, oh, we need to go there because yeah. it's certified so we can mix our film there? Right, exactly. Because if you go to a room that is the size of a movie theater, which only exists here in the Bay Area up at Skywalker Ranch, you're going to pay a lot more money. Yeah. So it's almost the same kind of philosophy as happened with the little box of translated video to send to a, to, you could send it to a TV. You want a, a room that doesn't cost a lot of money, but you can be confident that it's going to sound right in a movie theater. I see. Wow. Uh, it's, it's a whole nother mindset for a studio owner, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to get involved in mixing films, maybe in a smaller room on a smaller scale. But if they're smaller than what we have here... How many square feet would you say this is? You know, I'm not sure. I should know that, but I don't know. I'm going to guess and say maybe 700 to 1,000 at yeah. most. Any smaller than that. and Right. And, and that's of, what I thought when I first walked in. I went, hmm, I wonder if this room's big enough. Because the room I had before was twice the size. Yeah. So Roger owns the building, yeah. as you said. And so he said, don't build. Come on over here. You had it checked out. So then were, did your plans change as of that moment when he said that? Yeah, pretty much. I wasn't out of the other place yet. So I was still had a studio over there. So it took a while. I mean, we had to do some work down here. And my engineer, Jim Lively, who is still here with me, is upstairs working right now. He and I have had some experience in building the studios themselves. So we had to get some furniture here and we had to do some wiring. And it took a little while. It took four or five months, maybe. So I was still making money across town and preparing to migrate over here, which took, you know, a little while, a little while. And how many how many rooms do you have here? Three? Well, this building share that with that business that Roger used to be part of, Roger now works for Cutting Edge. So, oh. yeah. So Roger 
also left his partner, Patrick. So Patrick is running Polarity that used to be Roger and Patrick. Okay. And they're still here. We each have two studios and we share a third studio. And it's funny because once again, there's a tie into to previous episodes. The last episode with Eric Kunal, Eric used to work for Cutting Edge. I worked for Cutting Edge right. for a period of time. Yeah. So audience, if you haven't figured it out, the Bay Area has very few degrees of separation between everybody. We all <laughs> we all know each other one way or the other. There's we're all connected somehow. How long have we been here in this spot? I think we've been here about six years now. And What's your assessment of this time period? I think it's a harsh time to be in San Francisco, mostly because of the real estate values. I mean, you know, I think it's similar in the restaurant business as well, yeah. where you read all the time about restaurants that can't afford to pay their line cooks and their busboys, or if they pay them $15 an hour, they can't live in San Francisco on $15 an hour, so they live two hours away. So someone who's doing a very difficult job of a, being a line cook or a busboy or a waitress could potentially have a two to four hour commute every day. It's really eating away at the middle class here, yeah. the working class for yeah. sure. Well, so how is, have you seen that reflected in business? Yeah, totally. I, I'd say I, I, my core business has been mixing, sound designing, feature films, and I'd say 50% of my clients have left town. Wow. Yeah. Do you do any remote work for people? People mm -hmm. sending s files from a, a... Only like voice work. Okay. Yeah. So it's tough. It's tough. And plus, I have a lot of competition too. So first of all, there's Skywalker, which takes any job they want to away from me anytime they want to. So you know, there's nothing I can do about it. Films get a grant from the Film Society, and a lot of those films go to Skywalker. Interesting. Yeah. Because they can afford to take a hit. Right. The, uh, because they don't need to make there's money. There's just so much money there with George Lucas and, and company. And yeah. So I get that competition. Okay. And then there's a couple guys in town that I've known forever, Tom Disher and Jim Lebrecht. Disher Sound, right. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. And they just moved into the Film Society's building. So that hasn't made things totally any easier. But one thing that has been about this location that's different from everybody else is that our voice business is really solid. And we record a lot of voice here. We do a lot of ISDN and Source Connect sessions, and we work internationally all the time. And part of it is back to the real estate. It's a great location. People from out of town don't have any trouble finding it. I don't know where you park, but usually you can park right out front of this place. We actually came here on BART and yeah. walked here. Yeah. It was a casual walk. You can ferry here. You can BART here. You can bus here. Yeah. You can. I'm a bike commuter. I bike here every day huh. from Petraeo Hill. There's some parts about being in this location right by the waterfront that is like very, very beneficial to, and, and, I, and more of my clients have shifted to the North Bay and South Bay, which is also not so bad to get here especially from the South Bay. But coming across the Golden Gate Bridge, for instance, is a lot easier than coming across the Bay Bridge. Yeah, which is the primary reason why we didn't drive here today. Yeah, right, exactly. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Well, so why do you stay in it? What keeps you here other than whatever uh, obligations with with leases and such? But do you still have a passion for? for Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, you know, it's super exciting. And the tools that I have and where Pro Tools has taken us to is just off the chart. And like the reverbs and the processing and the plus the speed that you can do things and the way you interpret sound in general with sound minor are you familiar with sound minor yeah i know it i mean you know one of the things i talk about in sound design classes is that previously we would go look through sound effects and pick all the sound effects that might or might not work and bring them into a pro tool session and then make all these decisions about which ones we're going to use in the session. Mm-hmm. But now that the sound miner, the search engine syncs pro tools. So when you press play in the search engine, it runs pro tools. You can audition the sounds against the picture before you decide to take them into the session or not. Wow. So just that. And in, in the search engine, you can pitch things. So sometimes I'll do something as simple as like looking for ambiences and I can listen to the music coming out of Pro Tools and listen to the ambience coming out of Soundminer and pitch the ambience until it matches the same key as the music. Wow. Times they are a changing. Exactly. So that's it's the same thing. It's really been the same thing my whole career. It's like when something new and innovative comes along, I get really excited about it. I want to have it. I, you know, and like again, a lot of this stuff is not cheap, yeah. but compared to what I grew up with, it's a bargain. Yeah. Has there been anybody lately in the same vein as Coltrane, Hendrix, Laurie Anderson that have affected you in a positive way? I don't know. That's a tough question. I have to think about that. I'm okay. not really sure. I mean, I, I would say one thing, I'm I'm not listening to the current thing that as much I listen to music more now in a film context in terms of film scores. And Mm -hmm. Cliff Martinez is one of my favorite composers and tons of other people as well that are doing really, really interesting things. And that whole sort of idea of a cinematic score or soundtrack, I get really excited about that. We talk a lot about on the podcast about the concept of diversification of, of audio in order to continue running, you know, an operation, whether it's maybe a mix engineer who also happens to do podcast work or other types of work. What are all the different things that people come here for? Well, certainly I'm glad you said that because I've been talking about this person and that person, but certainly my engineer, Mike Dinko, who's been with me for 10 years or more, has just become this most amazing dialogue editor. 
And part of it is jumping into this technology that we've been talking about early on and then growing up with the technology as it gets more and more efficient. So when he takes a program that now many people are using, pretty common RX-7 to clean up dialogue, it's interesting to see Mike do it because Mike has just grown up with it. So for Mike, it's not like something's got noise in it. Let's put it through the noise reducer. It's like, well, it also has some lab bumps in it. So let's do the lav bumps first. And a lav bump would be when we when the lav mic bumps on the body? Yes. And so now there is a, a lav bump module in RX-7. So a lot of it is like, what do you do when and how to make it sound natural? Because that's been everyone's complaint about noise reduction. And it's true. It's very easy to go too far and have it sound a little robotic <laughs> or a little bit underwater. And some people, especially if they've never heard it before, sometimes we'll do a dialogue edit and the client will come in and listen to it for the first time. And there'll be some things that they'll go, wait, wait, that, that doesn't sound right. Because they've only heard it with all this background noise. And I think a lot of filmmakers don't really understand what happens when your dialogue gets blown up on a movie screen and comes out a center speaker isolated. And the level of detail that the audience hears from the dialogue is all these little things show up in a way that it's hard to hear or interpret other than with headphones. Huh. And that's one of the things about mixing in 5.1 or Atmos or whatever you have is that generally the dialogue comes out the center speaker. And it's one of the things that makes the cinematic listening experience so fantastic that you can turn the music up louder than you used to be able to because you, the dialogue is coming out of its own speaker and you can still get the clarity and understand what people are saying with hmm. a big, loud, dynamic, vibrant film soundtrack playing at the same time. So the things that get done here, so dialogue editing, yeah. film mixing in general. Mm -hmm. Sound design. Sound design. Foley. Foley. Yeah, and we have you know the only real Foley stage in San Francisco. And Foley stages are the most expensive rooms to build of all. You can't have any sound in there. It has to be dead quiet because you're often listening to 10 layers of Foley at once. And if there's any sonic imprint of the room you record in, times 10, yeah. you can't hear silence, 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 and then boom, the room pops on. <laughs> and then the sound happens. Right. Yeah. And you don't really want to go through and noise reduce all that stuff. And there's a lot of Foley programs. And I use some of these Foley programs. There are some footsteps programs you can play on the keyboard. But it's very slow compared to having a talented Foley artist that often just can get some very, a person walking down the street, turns around, looks behind him, starts running. Many of the Foley artists I work with can get that all in one take without ever having seen it before. That's a whole nother discipline Foley artists. And that's one of the things that I do. I was like, I don't do the dialogue here anymore. I sort of let, Mike is so much better at dialogue editing. He's so meticulous. Also, like you can pull room tone out of a piece of dialogue now. So you don't need to have room tone because you can just make room tone out of any dialogue by by, by subtracting the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So things like that. I can do a little bit of it. And I can do it. Sometimes I have to do it for some reason or other. Mike's not available. Or, but in general, I let Mike do that, which is incredible as a sound designer. Because another thing that's great about Mike's and my relationship is that Mike likes to work at night. 
So when we start a film, Mike comes in at night in here, in the mix room, does the dialogue edit here in the mix room, and he's a very good re-recording mixer himself. So when I come in the next day, he's done 15 minutes of dialogue. So when I start sound designing a, a project, I'm listening to finished movie soundtrack dialogue. So when I put something into my Pro Tools session, I'm putting it in at the right level. And so I'm mixing right from the very beginning. What do you look for in people like Mike? What are you looking for with these working relationships that makes your life easier? Well, just like I said, certainly for Mike on a practical level, I mean, the fact that he likes to work at night and I work during the day is like incredible. I mean, we can, when we're working in a film, we can bill a 20-hour day. Mm-hmm. So just that practicality. But a lot of it is who we are. Everyone in this building is a musician. My son, Carl, is now the office manager, and he just graduated with a music degree. So we are not giving up on music, even though there's no money in it. We never want to give up on, on having some musical aspect. On the last three films I've mixed, I've also composed some additional music cues. So well, so you can add that to the you add that to the list, of course. So I'm still very involved in music. I play music with my son, and he's in like a reggae band and two salsa bands. So this Latin thing that I started with my band all these years ago in Oregon, Upepo, is still kind of in this mix. It's always a part of you. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to go away. I have a home studio. I sometimes you know work on stuff at home and then bring it down here and polish it with a with the more extensive gear. I still play after I quit playing guitar and started playing saxophone, but I still play guitar. So I'm playing guitar and flute and keyboards. And and now, rather than writing songs, although I still write a few songs, a lot of times I orchestrate people's cues. A lot of people these days are hiring friends of theirs to score their movie, like student film or something, right? right. And it'll be kind of, it won't be very cinematic. So a lot of times I'm able to take somebody else's stripped down score and orchestrate it and make it sound much more cinematic, pretty easy with some of the tools I have. You know, I I talk about this on the podcast. As an audio professional, I consider myself a late bloomer to a lot of business and financial things. And I'm just kind of, after many years of being in it, have kind of got a, a better grasp on it. What is your approach to money in general, I mean, is it a struggle? Have you learned enough lessons that you have a systematic way of, of making it so you're not freaking out? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love your honesty. <laughs> and money is the biggest problem. Our overhead here is huge. And I need to come up with a, a lot of money every month. Yeah. And certainly losing a lot of my film business has has not been good because I'd say in some ways you could almost say if you're doing, I mean, one of the things that I've done versus my local competitors is I've probably done a lot more narrative films. I mean, the documentary film business is a, a little more common locally than the narrative film business. So, you know, I've done, I don't even know, probably 30 narrative films and 50 documentaries. But there's something about doing a narrative film that I think is a little can can be a little more imaginative, or I think it maybe opens my mind up to some possibilities that I might not have used on a documentary film previously. Yeah. Before I had that experience. I'm a little little slow to the to the film 
genres here. What's the difference between a documentary and a narrative? Well, a documentary is true, and it's usually archival footage or or staged footage about an event that really happened. Okay. Yeah, and a narrative is just somebody you know, somebody the Avengers. Oh, 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 I see. Okay, the Avengers. Okay, yeah. thank you. But I mean, I don't work on those kind of films like the Avengers. But uh, <laughs> but I work. You know, I did a Nigerian film called Amina this year. Scored all the music with my son. Carl under the name Upepo, my ah. band, which is my name I use when I when I'm a composer, just to keep the thread going way back machine. <laughs> uh, the cult of Upepo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For those who you know saw our band, it's still it was legendary at the time. First of all, we wrote all original songs, and we were mostly all instrumental, and we were like super popular and sold places out everywhere we went. So it was like. It was an interesting moment. I also, back around that time, got to know and worked with Jaco Pastorius a bit, too. So um, wow. I try and bring all that musical thing into orchestrating and scoring occasionally here. After scoring a, a film, a feature film, I realized that I'm not. it's not the perfect thing to do because you really need a specialized studio to do that kind of work. Right. You know, like what we're looking around here, it's a very clean, stripped-down studio. Rock and roll or music studios are kind of a messy business by definition. I mean, you want to have a lot of keyboards and a lot of instruments all hooked up, all ready to go. It's not at all like a, a room you would come into to mix a film. Yeah. Do you think with companies like Amazon and Netflix on, on the scene creating their own content – does that help? A, a little bit, a little bit. But I mean, honestly, most of the stuff happens in L.A. Most of everything happens in L.A. People, I, I have interns and students that ask me all the time, like, you know, I want to get into this. I want to do this. I want to make a living. I say, you know, if you really want to do it, you really and money is, is you know, the reason you want to do it because you want to have a comfortable lifestyle. You know, you should live in L.A. or New York. Yeah. Wait, have you ever considered moving? <laughs> Just once, David Lynch was going to hire me to run his whole sound studio he was going to build in Los Angeles. And I interviewed with him, and I went down there, and I talked to some other people in his company. And my son, Carl, who's here, you know, my office manager, was just born. And the idea of moving out of town didn't sound that good to me, but working with David Lynch sounded like a dream come true. And they offered me kind of an amazing amount of money. And I finally decided that I would take it. They said, you know, you can fly up here to see your kid all the time. We'll pay moving expenses. You know, they just sounded like a dream come true. And then at the last minute, David Lynch decided not to do it, not to build it. There's always that. <laughs> and part of it was through the Euphonics console. Because David Lynch was also very interested in technology and being very modern. And he got to work on a Euphonics console. And he bought a Euphonics console. Hmm. And a lot of people said, well, nobody really knows more about using a Euphonics console than Dave Nelson. And so that's how I ended up interviewing with him. Hmm. And then ultimately, he just bagged the idea. And then years later, he did build it. But by that time, the whole world had changed. And Euphonics console was not some get-in-free card. Yeah. <laughs> We're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you about work-life balance. Are you satisfied with how you've made that work, or has it been a struggle to have time for friends and family versus time for well, studio business? Well, you know, business? I sacrificed a lot to get where I am, and friends and family were high among the sacrifices I made. Now, as a slightly older man, I'm much more unforgiving about my free time. I mean, I don't work at night. 
I don't work on the weekends. Yeah. I usually start at 10. So I've realized that you can't. I, and I know some friends of mine that have worked, especially in Hollywood down there, who have some pretty significant physical problems from sitting in a chair for 12, 14 hours a day, like a film editor, neck problems, hand problems, back problems. One of the reasons I'm a bike commuter and I swim three hours a week because I realize that, again, it's not just being a talented person. You have to be pretty physically strong and mentally balanced to maintain this and be able to do it into the future. You know, relationships, <laughs> tough. I remember many times saying to someone I was living with or dating, why don't you meet me at the studio and then we'll go out afterwards. And they'll say, I hate that studio. I'm not coming down there for anything. Because so many times they had come down to meet me and the session went two hours long. Yeah. And they're sitting in the lobby for two hours. Yeah. So all those things, your physical stamina, how you approach it, how you manage your hours, and really when to say no. When you can say to a client, listen, I, this is a pointless to go any further today. Because certainly it's ear fatigue is gigantic. And, you know, sitting in a, you mix at theatrical levels when you're working and to sit in here for six, eight hours. After six or eight hours, I think the decisions you make are not the best decisions. And I've had many, many, many times when I was pressured into working late, pressured into working late, came in the next morning and changed almost everything we did with fresh ears. Yeah. People and then again, who pays for that? The client. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, but it's not part of the contract. See, <laughs> the contract doesn't have everything laid out. Yeah, that's true. So what happens then? You end up suffering a bit because ultimately you want to do the right thing. You want to make sure the client get, gets what they want so that the reputation of the studio and you is stays intact. Exactly. Yeah. And you want to just be nice about it. I mean, it's a collaborative thing. And it's fun to have these ideas with a film director and and it's fun to manifest something. I mean, I really truly believe that many, many, if not all film directors hear the movie in their head. It's like a dream. It's like trying to explain a dream to someone. You never can really, you know. And then uh, <laughs> and then I turned, got wings and then I, you know, flew through these clouds and it was wet and it was like these beads, uh, you know. You can never really can explain a dream like it really was in your head. I think kind of film directors often come in when they hear the movie in their head and it's a struggle on a mechanical and creative level to recreate that enough that they can feel like their dream of their film is coming true. Yeah, translating what's in the in the brain to the screen for not only sound but picture, that's a Herculean task. It is, yeah. Yeah, it takes a special mentality to sit and be comfortable and creative without losing the creative part at the same time. I'm glad you mentioned the swimming thing and the biking thing because that is just one thing a lot of us don't pay attention to is is exercise considering how much we sit yeah so they it's a you know a big topic everywhere in all offices and many many people have stand up desks now but you can't do that here you have to sit in the sweet spot you can't stand up and mix a film yeah unless you're Walter Merge and they build a special thing for you <laughs> yeah and then with the clients in the room it's like it'd be like a like yeah. a catholic church it's, okay everybody we're going to stand now <laughs> Okay, let's sit now for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody kneel. <laughs> well, Dave, this has been great. Thank you so much. People can find out more about you at... Outpostfilm.com. Outpostfilm.com. We'll put a link in the show notes for you there, audience, so you can check that out. And 
Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to talk with you and hear your journey. Yeah, great, Matt. All right, take care. Bye. Dave Nelson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank everybody who helped out with the show. That includes Anne Marie Plo on the editing. Mr. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song. And I want to thank Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. And I want to thank you for uh, listening. As always, spread the word, tell all your friends, and uh, make sure and subscribe, right? And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>